Well, hello, everybody. My name is Adrian Untermeyer, and welcome once again to the official podcast of the Historical Society of the New York Courts. You know, I'm down here today on the banks of the Passaic River in Newark, New Jersey, overlooking the New York City skyline, way in the background. And whether you're down on the docks or in the teeming metropolis of Manhattan, the themes of money and power, cops and robbers, have followed us through the ages. And we are so fortunate to have a guest here with us today, John Aller, who wrote a very interesting series of books on both of those topics, weaving in New York City history, New York State history, and of course, legal history. His first book, White Shoe, covered the story of how Wall Street corporate law came to be in the turn of the last century. And his newest book, Rogue's Gallery, just released a couple of weeks ago, covers the interplay between cops like Clubber Williams and the robbers who played that essential cat and mouse game throughout old New York before, during, and after. So buckle up for a very interesting conversation brought to you in coordination with the Woodlawn Cemetery Conservancy, where I'm proud to serve as treasurer and the Historical Society of the New York Courts. So with that, let's go straight to my conversation with John Aller, author of White Shoe and Rogue's Gallery. Um, good evening, everyone. Um, I'm happy to be here, um, and thank you to the uh, Woodlawn uh, Tuesday Night Book Club. Um, now, when you think of, uh, I'll call them cops and robbers, you typically, I would think in terms of good guys and bad guys, I suppose, depending on your view of the police these days. Uh, but either way, um, the two books I'm here to talk about tonight, White Shoe and Rogue's Gallery, raise the question, who are the cops and who are the robbers? Who are the good guys and the bad? Uh, let's start with White Shoe first. It's the story of a group of early Wall Street lawyers who revolutionized the legal profession and American big business in the process during the Gilded Age, which ran roughly from 1875 to about 1910. It was also known uh, as the Progressive Era, which extended a, a bit longer to about 1920 with the coming of Prohibition and the women's vote. Now, naturally, as lawyers, this group of men, and yes, they were all men back then, would be considered uh, on the side of the law. Um, and yet, they also served the robber barons, men like J.P. Morgan and John D. Rockefeller. So some people might consider these lawyers closer to robbers than cops. Now in rogues gallery, you have a similar situation. The rogues were truly bad, although interesting dudes, including a couple of bank robbers buried at Woodlawn. And I speak of the Hope brothers, Jimmy and his son, Johnny, who were participants in the biggest bank robbery in New York City history, the Manhattan Savings in Greenwich Village in 1878. And here's Johnny and Jimmy. Johnny is in the upper left. He's the son. Jimmy is in the upper middle. He's the father and, and the chief bank robber in, in the group. Um, but the cops in the rogues gallery also did a lot of robbing, too, of illegal operators such as prostitutes, gamblers, and saloon keepers who sold on Sunday when they weren't supposed to. Uh, all of whom had to pay for the privilege, and the cops called it a license, of doing business. These were es essentially extortion payments, and they made a lot of cops rich, including one Alexander Williams, better known as Clubber. Next slide, please. Okay. Who, who's also buried at Woodlawn. 
he got his nickname from the 26 inch club wooden club it was a locust club they called it um, that he used to bash people's heads in he came up on charges of brutality and graft more than 200 times but never never lost his badge and incidentally he was defended in those police hearings by one of the white shoe lawyers in my book okay but uh businessmen loved clubber williams because he kept the peace in a very very violent era so you tell me is clubber williams a cop or a robber now the next slide we'll see another woodlawn fellow clubber's partner in graft uh that is crime for a while until he turned to become a snitch on his fellow cops by the name of Max Schmidtberger. Once he became a snitch, he was forbidden to march in the annual police parade, uh, which was a big deal back then. And he was actually booed and hissed when, um, when he came uh, up on his horse and then they forbid him all, uh, banned him altogether. Now, while the subject matter of these two books is different, lawyers in one and police and rogues in the other, I submit that there's a similar theme running through both. Uh, for the one thing, the obvious uh, similarity is both books are set in New York City and both cover the same Gilded Age, progressive era, time period of roughly 1870 or so to 1915 or 1920. Uh, and in both books, we also see the birth and flowering of the professional class, lawyers in white shoe and the police in rogues gallery. And by that, I mean that both groups, lawyers and police, started to apply more scientific or at least technocratic slash bureaucratic systems than those that govern most of the 19th century. And this drive for modern efficiency, if you will, was one of the guiding themes of the progressive era. You had efficient but monopolistic conglomerations like Standard Oil and U.S. Steel, both featured in White Shoe, who were really the Googles and Facebooks of their day. In White Shoe, we also see evidence of that drive for efficiency in the development of the famous Cravath system, named for Paul Cravath, leader of the firm now known as Cravath, Swain and Moore. Uh, as an aside, Cravath, as a young lawyer, got his start representing George Westinghouse in his war with Thomas Edison over AC currents versus DC currents and which one was gonna control the future. Westinghouse actually won that war. There's been a movie on it. There's another one supposedly in the works. Uh, in any event, Cravath gave birth to what's called known as the Cravath system. Uh, and it's still used today. The essence of it is that instead of having little one or two person partnerships and a bunch of unpaid clerks who never went to law school, which was the predominant uh, methodology in the 19th century. Um, and then that, in that system, the partners kept all the clients to themselves. They didn't share them with each other. Uh, instead of that, uh, Cravath's idea was you build a larger organization. You hire the law students from the best schools. You train them on the job as associates, as they were came to be known, and either promoted them to partner in seven to eight years back then, or sent them on their their way. It was really, um, in his design, a meritocracy, as opposed to the old system, which was kind of a nepotistic uh, uh, system. Uh, under the crevasse system, the partners are partners for life, and they share clients, they share profits, and it's the model still used today in most major law firms, as well as accounting firms, 
and consulting firms. Now it's undergone some changes around the edges. Partners move around a lot more from one firm to another, which almost never used to happen. Uh, and the exclusive WASP club that populated the early Wall Street firms is obviously by the boards, it's much more diverse today, especially with women who make up more than 50% of the associate class in many firms. And whereas uh, Adrian's great-great-grandfather, uh, Samuel Untermeyer, whom you all know, uh, all of the you Woodlawn people at least know, and who's featured in my White Shoe book, uh, was once the only high-powered Jewish corporate partner on Wall Street. And uh, yet the old discrimination against Jews and Catholics uh, among the white shoe firms began to melt away around the 1950s and was pretty much gone by the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and you don't hear much talk today of, quote, Jewish firms or WASP firms, although surprisingly, the, the, the term white shoe is still used, although I think more as an indicator of quality uh, than anything. Another good guy versus bad guy theme in White Shoe is how the Robin, robber baron lawyers often switch sides to work for the government in going after their former clients. A case in point is George Wickersham, an early founder of the firm of Cadwallader, Wickersham and Taft, who became the attorney general and chief antitrust prosecutor for President William Taft, whose brother was a law partner of Wickersham's. And here we see in a popular magazine of the time, uh, George Wickersham as attorney general terrorizing a bunch of Wall Street men. Um, okay, switching back to rogues gallery, you also see there the professionalization of the NYPD. It starts with an Irish detective, the fellow on the far left here named Thomas Burns, who gained his fame solving the Manhattan sa savings heist, the one that Jimmy and Johnny Hope were involved in, uh, though he never did succeed in putting Jimmy Hope uh, behind bars for it. Tom Burns introduced such innovations as the daily lineup, the rogues gallery, which were mugshots so that cops and victims could identify uh, the criminals, and the so-called third degree method of interrogation, both physical and more so for Burns psychological. Uh, if you want to consider that an innovation, it's you know obviously frowned upon today, although I have no doubt that it still goes on in time, at times and in places. Then you have next, you have Teddy Roosevelt as head of the uh, NYPD Police Commission starting in 1895, introducing things like the Bicycle Squad, which was the forerunner of the Traffic Bureau, a pistol practice for cops who couldn't hit the side of a barn before that, telephone call boxes in the street, and most important, perhaps, merit hiring for police. They used to have to pay the higher-ups and the politicians a lot of money, thousands of dollars, to get their initial job or further promotions. Again, this element, uh, this uh, uh, concept of meritocracy um, manifests itself in a guy we'll see, I think, a little later, John McCullough. He was a favorite of Teddy Roosevelt. He was the first police chief of Consolidated New York City, which came together in 1898 with the merger of all the, the boroughs. Uh, and as an aside, Roosevelt is a, is a major character in White Shoe as well. He was friends with many of the big name lawyers, including Cravath. He was a trust buster. And his Panama Canal, the ultimate uh, symbol, I would say, of efficiency in the Gilded Age progressive era, 
was greatly facilitated by William Nelson Cromwell, uh, who's buried at Woodlawn and is the progenitor of the Sullivan and Cromwell law firm. You may have heard of them. And then finally in rogues gallery at the end of the Gilded Age, things like fingerprinting and blood typing come in. Before that, it was almost exclusively detective legwork that got crimes solved. Now, at the same time, the police were professionalizing, so too were the rogues. If you remember the movie uh, Gangs of New York starring Leo, Leo DiCaprio, uh, which took place just before and during the Civil War, the gangs were mostly a bunch of street rowdies. And contrary to what the movie shows, they didn't really use guns much. But during the Gilded Age, that is post-Civil War, pre-Prohibition, the gangs became much more organized, hierarchical in structure, and lethal. Crime became essentially a business for them. And there was a, there was a progression from the early Irish gangs, which also um, modernized, and then the Jewish gangs, and then the Italian gangs, kind of mimicking the, the pattern of immigration throughout the late uh, 19th century. A bit, of, a bit of Chinese gangs, although not very much because Chinese immigration was greatly restricted at that time. Uh, and of course, it all culminates in the mafia, which takes place in New York City or is give, has its birth in New York City, I should say, around 1900. It was formed by a guy named Giuseppe Morello, otherwise known as the Clutch Hand. Uh, and and um, uh, that's him there. Uh, in the next slide, we'll see a couple of famous NYPD cops. Um, Joe Petrosino on the far left, the Italian Sherlock Holmes, headed up the Italian squad, one of, one of uh, only a handful of NYPD detectives who could speak Italian. And um, at the far right is Art Carey, who was sort of a murder expert. He founded, uh, he was the first head of the homicide squad. And in between is a Morello gang member known as the Ox, who's being carted away to a prison. Uh, gone by this time were the days of what I'll call the gentleman bank robber or safe cracker like Jimmy Hope, who was commonly a well-dressed man who looked like a broker or insurance man uh, and who preferred brains to brawn. So to sum up, uh, both books are really about how the professional classes on the side of the law modernized themselves in moving from the 19th to the 20th century and how the things they had to deal with huge corporations in the case of the lawyers and structured criminal enterprise in the case of the police expanded and modernized along with them on a parallel track. So with that, I think I'll turn it back to uh, Adrian for a little back and forth and discussion and Q and A. Wow, John, that was an absolute treat. And, and on behalf of everybody who's joining us here live in the Zoom tonight and on the recording up online, we really wanna thank you uh, for contributing to the conversation about Gumshoes. I think um, today that is particularly front of mind, um, given the horrific attacks that we witnessed in the New York City subway system this morning. Um, the militaristic precision um, that goes into having a modern organized force um, and the ability to prevent um, atrocities and track down those who are responsible. Um, obviously, there is some bad that came along with that. We'll certainly discuss that this evening, um, but a tremendous amount of good and innovation came with that as well. And all of that resides permanently at Woodlawn with so many of the figures um, that you brought to light. And I wanted to start off the conversation 
um, sort of by tracing things back a little bit, right? We're here for a cemetery conservancy. Um, and we're talking about crime and jails, you know, not always the best topics that people want to think about um, after dinner and after work. Um, but there's a progression there, you know, sort of the typical view of the tombs in Lower Manhattan, where a lot of the ruffians who we described earlier in the conversation ended up um, being placed pending trial and serving out sentences in some of these Victoria facilities and cemeteries with the iron gates. Um, it's just such an interesting aesthetic. And I was hoping you could sort of comment a little bit about um, the buildings where all of this sort of took place, the courthouses, the jails in Lower Manhattan, um, and, and talk a little bit about um, some of those places and some of those faces that we saw in there. Yeah, well, um, some of these places still exist. There is the police building down at 240 Center Street, a magnificent building. I have a friend who lives there, a good friend who lives there. Um, that came into being in around 1909, I think, so sort of at the tail end of this period that we're talking about. Uh, before that, the police building was at Mulberry Street, 300 Mulberry. It no longer exists. Um, there are still some haunts, I'll call them, of famous murder sites. There's a couple hotels in New York where there were grisly murders that took place. Uh, that Art Carey, the guy I mentioned as the Homicide Squad, had um, investigated. Um, the infamous Five Points can still be sort of seen. You can go down there next to the Pearl Street Courthouse and see where the five, I think now it's three, but at one time it was five uh, streets converged. And now it's a, it's a park and a playground. Um, not far from that is the site of the old tombs prison, which was an Egyptian style, almost mausoleum, huge structure. Um, and it's now there's a little park there about five minutes from the five points. Um, you can still see places on Mulberry Bend where the uh, Irish gang, the Wyos hung out. And um, there, you know, if you go to my book, I have a lot of these, you know, noted in a map. There are also a couple other books out there, you know, places for, uh, for some of these people run guided walking tours and you can see some of these places. But, you know, it's, it's, there's a fair number of places that still exist, most, mostly downtown, mostly below 14th Street. Right. And, you know, you're, you're talking about haunts and you're talking about mausoleums. What a wonderful um, way to bring it home to the cemetery, John. Not sure if that was intentional or not, but we'll give you the credit nonetheless. Okay. Um, you know, there was another figure who sort of haunted some of those judicial mausoleums downtown. And I believe she's buried in Woodlawn as well. Um, a woman by the name of Rebecca Salome Foster, but better known as the Tombs Angel um, for her visitations with folks in the tombs. Who was Miss Foster, John? I mean, I've heard of her, but I don't, I, I don't, I didn't include her in my book. I know that she uh, supposedly ministered to the, um, you know, the inmates and made their, tried to make their miserable lives in, yeah. in that, in that place a little less miserable. I mean, it was really an awful place to be. It, the, the smell, the rats, the, the conditions um, were, you know, many times worse than what you might think of Rikers Island in the, 70s or 80s. That's correct. That's correct. And, and you know, as a testament to her ministry, um, visitors to 60 Center Street, New York County Courthouse downtown, there's a beautiful marble uh, monument newly restored to Salome Foster's memory. Just another person 
um, who falls into that sort of woodlawn umbrella. And um, before we talk a little bit more um, about Woodlawn and bring in a very special guest this evening, um, I do want to make a mention of somebody you spoke about earlier, my great-great-grandfather, um, Samuel Untermeyer. My understanding um, from reading White Shoe is that a lot of Jewish attorneys found themselves referred to as members of the lower bar, um, almost a grubbier type, as we discussed in other Woodlawn events. Can you tell us a little bit more about that lower bar dynamic and tell us also about Samuel Untermeyer and his legacy. Yeah, well, the lower bar, you know, the term shyster kind of developed from that. It was a, yeah. it was a derogatory term, but it, it kind of, that's kind of where it comes from. Uh, obviously the, the, the Jewish lawyers, um, first of all, they couldn't, for the most part, they could not get into the Harvards and Yales of the day and the big white shoe firms only hired law students out of uh, Harvard, Yale, and Columbia. Um, um, so uh, there were very few Jewish lawyers who were, you know, candidates for white shoe firms, even if the firms had been willing to accept them, which they weren't. Um, so they kind of formed themselves into their own little, you know, sometimes mostly little Jewish law firms. Untermeyer started out doing corporate work and he got into trouble a couple of times with, with, um, you know, kind of somewhat, he was accused of fraud and, and, um, but he turned on a dime and, and I think that played into his later vociferous pursuit of as the, um, not a white shoe lawyer, but a white hat lawyer. Uh, going after the big corporations, going after people like J.P. Morgan, we cross-examined famously in uh, some committee hearings on the um, you know, control of money in America. So uh, Samuel Untermeyer really became a very strong liberal champion of uh, the underdog. Um, now it cuts off in my book, and I'll pick it up in the epilogue a little bit. He he he. Um, he was accused of sympathizing with the Germans in World War One, and there's something to that. He wasn't a total uh, sympathizer, but he, he had some dealings which were, I think he regretted, and he became very strongly anti-Hitler, anti-Nazi, and uh, he wasn't going to make that same mistake again. So um, he was very well known as um, a, a strong advocate of a, of a of, of America really getting involved in, in uh, Europe in World War II. Right, and thank you, John. And, and thank you for that honesty too, because I think oftentimes when we think of Samuel Untermeyer, we think of the lush and lavish Untermeyer Gardens in Yonkers, New York, another National Historic Landmark um, now being brought back to life um, or the fountain in Central Park. But we don't always talk about those darker moments. And one thing I appreciated uh, from your book was a look um, to later in Samuel's life where he almost nostalgically looked back on his life in the South and as a boy stepping into the street and saying something along the lines of hail Jefferson Davis. Yes. Um, that, yeah. Right. Yeah. That level of extensive research and historical honesty is, is certainly what made that book um, stand out to me. And so glad that you're here with us this evening. And just a reminder to everybody who's joining us uh, live via the Zoom, please do place your questions in the chat, uh, your comments in the chat so we can address them. But I would like to bring in a very, very special guest to liven up our conversation. Um, a woman who literally created her own job description and then took the job 
um, which I think is a noble thing to do. And it is a gift to all of us um, because it brought to Woodlawn One Susan Olson, our Director of Historical Services, um, who is in the job and livening up Woodlawn for many years now on our trolley tours and many others. Um, please do go online and check out our upcoming tours and events. You can engage with Susan in real life. But Susan, I think you've had some thoughts about the formation of law firms and partners and how that all happened. Susan, please unmute yourself and say hello. As far as Woodlawn goes, we started with White Shoe. And of course, you came and talked to some of our interns about having your grandfather in a book before we went to Untermeyer Gardens. And with the book, like any book we get that's new, we quickly index who at Woodlawn is buried in there. And for me, I think one of the things that was so surprising was kind of the firm swapping. And what I learned from the book and from John, and I'll have him go on about it, is the size of firms, we assume firms are like they are today. And I think that's one of the things that I learned was the emergence of the legal profession. When did law schools really come about where you were really a lawyer as opposed to I'm studying the law? And then from there, John, how were these early partnerships founded? And how did that system work before Cravath came up with what we think of as law firms today? Yeah, well, I should make clear that even, even Cravath, even the the early firms that Cravath was involved with and Cromwell and these other guys, they were pretty small firms, you know, six to 10 to 15 to maybe 24. I mean, they were nothing like the thousand lawyer firms that we have today. And yet they were considered at the time, anything more than two or three lawyers was, you know, considered a law factory back then. Um, and I think most, you know, before these firms, as I said, it was just, it was sort of ad hoc partnerships of a couple guys in an office who didn't, weren't really partners in any true sense. They just shared office space and they didn't share clients or profits and they hired their own clerks, usually a friend or relative. And Cravath came along and said, you know, this is not, this is not going to do. Uh, our clients are JP Morgans and, you know, Rockefellers and Westinghouse's they are organizing into big, big, you know, institutions with hierarchies and uh, stressing efficiency, et cetera. And if we're going to represent them, we got to do the same thing. And that's kind of how it started. Um, as you, you mentioned, firm jumping, I think in the early days, yes, uh, there was a firm called the Walter Carter firm that was sort of the farm team or kindergarten for uh, Wall Street lawyers. And Cravath was a mem was an associate in that firm. Charles Evans Hughes was an associate and then became a partner in that firm. And a guy named um, Hornblower, uh, who went on to form my old firm, Wilkie Farr and Gallagher, he was a partner in that firm. He got upset with his compensation. Some, some things don't change. And he uh, stormed off with another guy named Byrne and they formed Hornblower, Hornblower and Byrne and that eventually became Wilkie Farr and Gallagher. Um, Cravath stayed with the Carter firm. Hughes stayed with the Carter firm. Cravath then leaves to join a firm run by one of William Seward, the old secretary of state for Lincoln, one of his uh, nephews, I believe, that was known as the Seward firm that morphs eventually into the Cravath firm. 
Uh, Hughes stays with the little Carter firm, goes off to the government, becomes a Supreme Court justice and presidential candidate, comes back to the Carter firm, which then gets renamed in his honor as Hughes, Hubbard, and Reed, a firm that still exists today. Well, John, you just added to our list. Seward's nephew is buried at Woodlawn also with a fabulous medallion on his grave. Uh, So that's, you know, again, pretty exciting to me. Um, One of the things that, you know, I want to share with the group that if everyone has not read these books, what's remarkable of the way that John puts it together is in many ways, it's like a novel. He really goes in depth about these characters and their personalities, as well as their adventures or, you know, their crimes and their successes and that. But one of the most fascinating folks, and I love that slide of Cromwell with his curly tuft of hair, because that's not exactly how you depict a big, you know, white shoe lawyer. Uh, Of course, what we learn from the books is that Cromwell goes with international business. And I think that's what fascinated me was that, These guys were so proficient in business and creating the laws today, as well as, you know, defending and their clients and making money for their clients. But what surprised me most in our Woodlawn research is that Cromwell did not plan for the afterlife. He didn't build his mausoleum. He left it to the firm and John Foster Dulles to do that. Does that seem typical, John, of what Cromwell would have done? And he seemed like a man who planned everything. Yeah, it's it is a little. Well, it's uh, it's odd, and, and yet it is. Dulles was his uh, protege, and Dulles, maybe even more so than Cromwell, really developed the international, global practice that kind of dominates big law firms today, or is it? A, or is at least a big part of big law firms today. Um, Cromwell was very particular about things. His legacy in France. He was a big Francophile and he had a bust there and a portrait and he didn't like him. So he made him redo it. Um, and he gave a lot of money away. He founded this um, society in New York that still exists for the study of, uh, I forget what it is, colonial law or something like that. But but um, yeah, I, w- I, I would have thought that he would have taken more care about his U.S. burial legacy, but I think he trusted Dulles quite a bit. And Dulles comes in kind of toward the end of my book, and he's obviously more famous. He's more known for his Secretary of State years under Eisenhower as being a fervent anti-communist. But it was he was actually kind of a liberal when he was younger. He was a he, he knew and, and uh, respected uh, Woodrow Wilson, and he went over to the um, Versailles Paris peace talks at the end of World War One, and as an associate, he was you know drafting the uh, some of the main documents and making some of the main oral pitches. So very talented um, guy, and there's been many books written on him. Now, speaking of talented guys, we have Gary Malone on the line. Um, who did write in the chat with a question. Um, Gary's asking about about this sort of period in American and New York City history where there's a tremendous commercial surge in New York. Factories, immigrants, this entire melange, which results in a heightened level of urbanism as the 1800s turn to the 1900s. And we see the legacies of that as we walk around New York, of course, as well. Um, So Gary is wondering how the growth of this urbanization of America in this time 
influenced that organization of the cops and the criminals and the lawyers that you were talking about. John, do you want to take a stab and then maybe Susan, you can comment? Well, I think, you know, America in the, in the 1800s was mostly an agrarian um, country uh, outside of a, a few large cities. And you didn't have the need so much. It, it, it was just not as complex as it became when you had larger cities, larger corporations, and more people. Um, so I, I think they kind of, I think they kind of went along in parallel. The growth of the country, the expansion of urbanism, of industry, of finance, stocks, bonds, uh, which really came in in a big way after the Civil War. The floating of bonds to create railroads, which uh, brought the country together, but a lot of those railroads then went bust, so created a lot of bankruptcy work for some of these early lawyers. Um, it, it all kind of mushed together, I think. Susan, what do you think about that urbanization and what it what it meant for for the cops and, and the robbers and the lawyers as organization burgeoned? Well, one of the things that John does so well in the books is he talks about how wealthy the policemen become. <laughs> And he converts the dollars from today, their dollars to our dollars. These guys were multimillionaires. But when he talks about his primary character, Burns, the fact that he was big buddies with Jay Gould was astounding to me. That can you imagine a cop getting stock tips from somebody? And that's how this policeman, because when they go through the whole corruption and this and that, he's like, no, I made my money. I wasn't doing corruption. I was getting stock tips from somebody I helped out. And I thought that was fascinating was the diverse relationships that you show that the policemen have from the prostitute on the street to Jay Gould. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the other thing was that these New York policemen, a lot of them were very well known to the public. I mean, they're, 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 I mean, you couldn't name the captain of the 19th precinct today in New York, but back then there was a, there was a lot of crime reporting. Uh, these guys were somewhat celebrities, guys like Burns and Williams and Schmidtberger. They were on the front pages all the time. And um, when they got in trouble, when they, uh, you know, got indicted, that was big news. And a lot of them got indicted. You know, it was a smaller world, obviously. So um, they were they were well known within that world. And, to the and some of these names loom large today. You mentioned Petrosino earlier, um, the early police figure. And of course, there's Petrosino Square yes. in Manhattan now, his namesake. Um, so these people loomed large. These names really resonated. But I want to talk about a name that really resonated with me tonight, Clubber. Um, Susan wrote me earlier asking if any of us think that that Clubber Williams character was likable in any respect. Susan, you know, do you think he was a likable figure? And John, um, fill in the blanks after Susan's done sharing. I think one of the things that is so fun about John's book is he talks about Clubber, who's beating everybody up, who's oh. corrupt as can be. And then there's McCullough, who he refers to as a choir boy. And McCullough's success as a policeman doesn't last very long because he is this good guy and he gets thrown out as the head of the police department. Again, you have so much of Tammany Hall and the politics that balances out. But I love the fact that these two characters, 
I'm cheering for Clubber, the bad guy, as opposed to McCullough, the Boy Scout. Mm. So, John, was that the public reaction too, or just the public? Oh, I, I think the, I think Clubber was fairly popular with the public because he, um, you know, he cleaned up crime in a, in a big way, and you know, crime was pretty violent back then. I think on a per capita basis, there were more murders uh, and violent crimes in New York back then than maybe at any time since, with possible exception of the sort of the crack era, cocaine era of the early 90s. Um, but the homicide rate was very high and and Clubber cracked down literally. And uh, he interestingly, he was um, he was not a Tammany guy. He was a Republican. He was kind of a white shoe cop. And uh, he did one good thing. I don't think he's very laudable myself, but he did one good thing, which is he paved the way for Joe Petrosino. He got him a waiver of the height requirement, which back then was five foot eight and Petrosino was only five foot three. Petrosino started out for all his later glory as kind of a bag man for, for Clubber Williams down in Little Italy. Um, and uh, Clubber got him, brought him up through the ranks, got him a job and, uh, and Teddy Roosevelt loved Petrosino. He, you know, formed the Italian squad for him. There's one other guy I didn't mention, um, another corrupt guy. If, if, if it's possible to be more corrupt than Clubber Williams, I think Big Bill Devery was. He was a huge guy. Uh, he was the guy who forced McCullough out um, and, and, and became uh, the police chief after McCullough's brief tenure. Uh, Big Bill Devery, now he was a Tammany man through and through. Um, and he, you know, he used to hold court in his office, which was a bar down in, you know, lo the Lower East Side. Um, interestingly, you know, he formed a gambling partnership with a couple of uh, New York bigwig gamblers and eventually ends up buying uh, the New York, um, actually, I, I don't remember what their name was in Baltimore, but he, he moved the Baltimore franchise I don't think they were known as the Orioles then, but uh, but uh, but he brought them to New York, named them the Highlanders, and ran them for a, a few years. They were very mediocre back then, and ends up selling them to Colonel Jacob Rupert in around nineteen eighteen or nineteen, um, just in time to buy Babe Ruth from Boston and cre <laughs> create the New York Yankees. Hey, Susan, brief digression, but do we have any other baseball figures at Woodlawn? We have Frankie Fish, the Fordham Flash. Um, we have Grantland Rice, the sports writer. It's not whether you win or lose, but how you played the game. Oh, oh that's right. Game. And then we have Alex Pompez, who was a numbers runner and a scout, and he made it in with the Negro League. So we have three Hall of Famers. That's fantastic. Then, Adrian, one of the things you need to think about as far as serving at Woodlawn is back in the day uh, to echo what John just said about the publicity Woodlawn's board of directors decided we would not bury anyone who was put to death in the electric chair. Oh, wow. And then money talks. So we have six people put to death in the electric chair. And so far in our research, we found one person that was hung in the tombs, but probably the most infamous person or one of the most infamous 
is Charles Becker, the policeman who was put oh. to death in the electric chair. Yes. And again, it's in one of those books that we first learn about Clubber and what's going on in the Tenderloin. And this cop who was caught with a gambling ring and accused of murder and put to death in the electric chair. The funeral was huge and the board was so distressed about all the negative publicity we were getting because of criminals being buried at Woodlawn. And one of the things I will do to follow up on John's talk tonight is get into the newspapers and read about the Hope's funerals. I can't imagine that Jimmy and Johnny Hope didn't have big celebrated funerals. Their gravestone is so simple and so boring, but nonetheless, you know, these guys were characters that everybody loved. They were the gentlemen bank robbers, brilliant people who planned and thought, uh, architectural plans, the whole bit. The section on the early bank robbers and safe crackers is just fantastic. I love that part of the book. I wanna talk a little bit about a group that has come up here a couple of times um, you know, we spoke a little bit about cops dabbling into the world of bribery, and there was another group involved with quite a bit of bribery and other shenanigans in New York. Um, it was once said by a historian that uh, Tammany Hall started off with all the ritual and mumbo jumbo of a typical civic organization at the time, but then, of course, it bloomed into this graft machine. Um, John and Susan, you know, tell us a little bit about Tammany Hall and how that all sort of was working in the background during this era, um, before, during, and after, shall we say, because its legacy is still with us today. Yeah, it's, it's a huge uh, topic, but I mean, people differ on Tammany Hall. I, you know, I've talked to a couple of people who I um, referenced in the book as, as sources and who read parts of the book, and some of them are, are quite adamant that Tammany Hall gets a bad rap that it was it was really this the social safety net for poor immigrants at the time it got them their jobs it got them their Christmas turkeys it took them out on the boat uh, in the summer to um, what they used to call chowders um, so they did a lot of good things but yes they rigged elections now, maybe they didn't have to rig them because they already had the votes uh, for the most part, but, um, but they um, did all sorts of shenanigans to send people with fake names and into the ballot box and, uh, you know, have them vote three, four times. They'd have their mustache on and then they'd shave the mustache and send them in again. <laughs> so, you know, they were, um, there was that aspect to them. Um, and they controlled, they had a, a huge degree of control over the cops, over the hiring of cops, over the promotion of cops. Um, and, uh, you know, their, their influence continued, you know, beyond this period that we're talking about. It was, I don't think it's great in the 30s and 40s. I think it, it sort of died out by, by then. Probably its heyday was, well, obviously Boss Tweed was Tammany. So, he was until he got his, you know, fingers, hand caught in the cookie jar and went to prison. Um, but it continued. It continued very strong beyond beyond Boss Tweed for another thirty, you know, years at least. Right, and the interface, of course, with justice was just so um, so very present throughout the history of Tammany. You know, the great um, Tammany author, shall we say? Um, we know of his reminiscences because they've been published. Um, George Washington Plunkett 
of course, were called how yes. to go in and have a word with the judge um, regarding the drunks and disorderlies and magically they would be uh, released. And he, of course, also referred to his Supreme Court justiceships, you know, a very esteemed judicial post here in New York State, um, referred to them as this big plum, um, which you could reward a loyal foot soldier with during the Tammany years. Um, I, I only know all this because I just finished writing a chapter on, on Tammany in our uh, legal history of New York County. And I'm gonna drop a link to that in the chat in just a moment. But we do have another question from that chat as we're mentioning it. Um, the question is from Megan, she's asking about technology, crime fighting tactics, um, you know, blood typing and fingerprinting, sort of the CSI of that day, if you will. You know, John, sort of take us behind the scenes on how these folks were um, solving crimes. What sort of stands out to you? What do you remember from your research? Well, during the period that I covered, there really wasn't any. I mean, there, I mean, there, there, there was no such thing as modern forensics. The first fingerprinting case where anyone was convicted based on fingerprinting was, I think, 1911. Blood typing didn't come in until 1901, I believe. So for the, mo for the most part during the 30 or 35 years that I cover in the book, they, they really had nothing. They had a very crude ballistics um, forensics where they could take a bullet and say, yes, that could have come from that gun. It's consistent with coming from that gun. But they had no ability to take a bullet and a gun and say, this bullet came from that gun. Um, so they really, the way they caught crooks was either caught them red-handed in the act or they had eyewitnesses, and we all know how unreliable eyewitness testimony can be, or they extracted a confession from them by hook or by crook. Um, so that, though, or, or they had, or they had legwork, detective work, clues, which led to, and that was what Art Carey really pioneered was, was you know, the thought process of of putting clues together and, and leading to someone, but you still, you didn't, you know, you didn't, to convict them, uh, it was gonna be circumstantial for the most part, unless you had, unless you had a really solid eyewitness, um, you know, to testify. Yeah, and it brings to mind that seminal New York case, you know, which gives us so much of our evidence law, um, People versus Molyneux, where they were tracking down all of these poisons that were sent through the mails in a very methodical fashion. It's, it's fascinating to think about how things worked back then. But, you know, there's, we're talking about the cops, we're talking about the attorneys. Um, sort of a hybrid figure in that role is the prosecutor. And they, of course, are pursuing their cases in the courts. They're doing a little bit of gumshoe work themselves. And Susan, you know, a more modern figure is buried at Woodlawn, um, actually out of Brooklyn, not out of the Bronx or Manhattan, as with many of our residents, that being Ken Thompson, um, the former Brooklyn DA who unexpectedly passed relatively recently um, after a battle with cancer. Susan, who was Ken Thompson and how did he end up at Woodlawn? I don't have the slightest idea. <laughs> there you go. No, I know you. Um, the fact that a Brooklynite would come to Woodlawn yeah. is, you know, a pretty strong comment. And I think it was, you know, his family. We have a tremendous African-American legacy at Woodlawn, mainly because of the number four subway connecting us to Harlem. And that's why so many figures from the Harlem Renaissance and then their families come in the next generation, et cetera. But Thompson, who did so many of the early very controversial cases regarding the police, 
and too many shootings and too many bullets and too many this. Basically, you know, the police were aggressive and using too much force. And uh, Thompson was front and center on those cases and just a remarkable guy. And we, of course, were incredibly honored that his family said, we want to bring him to Woodlawn. He's got a beautiful memorial with cameo photos and that. And just, again, surprising to us, sometimes Woodlawn gaining its reputation with people saying, that's where I want to be. I know I'm going to be visited and I know I'm going to be included in the legal tour. And so we see, you know, these remarkable characters who have made such an impression on our history be there. And for us, you know, one of the things that John was talking to is kind of the concept of the have and have not. Those who fought for the little guys and those who fought for the big guys. And it ranges from LaGuardia to Vito Marcantonio to Robert Moses' character that some of the things that are discussed today, similar to Tammany Hall, those guys are there too. And again, it's that concept of the immigrant population and people representing the poor who have the American dream. And it's very fascinating in both of John's books where that is presented, that there is this issue in New York of do you take care of the little guy or do you make the big guy bigger? And he does a beautiful job of kind of intertwining those issues of how the city grows. Yeah, I saw a question from my friend Hal Kennedy about how how judges got picked and who picked them and were they corrupt? Uh, the answer is yes, they were corrupt. Uh, <laughs> many, many of them. Uh, they did not. They were not picked by the white shoe firms. They were picked by Tammany. Um, those uh, most of the judges in the Gilded Age were in New York were Tammany approved, and the reason being so that they could then let the Tammany crooks and their criminal um, cronies who enforced the election day um, fraud so that they could let them out with um, little or no bail, which is, you know, kind of an issue today. John, I want to ask a question about that. Did you find in your research on the firms, did the firm push an outstanding figure to politics? Because the whole concept of leaving your firm to go run for public office how did you perceive that? Was it a push or was it a calling? I think it was more the latter. I think that um, I think that some of these guys were driven to public service by their own um, ideology, their own, in, in many cases, <laughs> genuine desire to serve the public, to serve in government. Certainly Charles Evans Hughes, I would put in that category. I think Elihu Root was in that category. He was somewhat more conservative than Hughes. Um, and, and the other guys, the other main characters in my book, I don't think ran for public office per se, but they served in government like Wickersham. They served on, uh, international commissions and organizations. Cravath was, he founded the council of foreign relations. He was a big internationalist. Um, and it all, it all kind of comes together in, at least in white shoe in, in world war one where it was really um, this handful of white shoe lawyers were, were very influential um, internationalists fighting the isolationist trend of um, staying out of war. And, um, and then they got involved in the 
battle with Wilson over the League of Nations, but I think they supported a League of Nations, but not, just not Wilson's League of Nations. Um, so uh, I don't know if that answers your question. Well, I think for me, I was looking at, you know, did these people say the only way I'm going to change the law is if I make the law and whether or not that prompted people to serve the public? Because today, you know, how many politicians that are out there, successful politicians, are not lawyers? Just about everybody is. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes, I think that's true. And another point I make is that um, the influence of white shoe lawyers today is not nearly what it was, you know, 100 years ago. I mean, these guys were, they were well-known American public figures. They served as secretaries of state, secretaries of war uh, on the Supreme Court. Um, you, you just don't, um, I think I, I have a line in there, the last true Wall Street white shoe lawyer to serve in the president's cabinet was uh, Cy Vance Sr. under Jimmy Carter. Um, the Another Woodlawn lot owner. Not buried there, but <laughs> another Woodlawn <laughs> character. Um, so, uh, yeah, and, and I would just, most of these lawyers were what I would call moderate to liberal Republicans of the day, the Eastern liberal Republican establishment. There were a couple of Democrats in there, but um, for the most part, that's what they were. And, you know, starting in the 1980s, I would say, uh, liberal Republicanism started to decline and today it's almost non-existent. So, um, so a lot of their, their legal and political power derived from that. And it was, you know, it was an exclusive WASP club. Um, they had their union league and their metropolitan clubs and um, they were, it was a very homogenous group. They did a lot of good things. They did some things that a lot of people would say were not so great, but they, um, they had influence. John and Susan, the, book, the bell is getting a little close to 8.05, which would mark an hour of our conversation. So if folks are curious more about um, this jump from, you know, from the bar to politics and the calculations that went into that. We had a great event recently that Woodlawn did with the Historical Society of New York Courts. And we talked about that exact topic, including when um, there was, of course, Samuel Untermeyer's desire to be on the Supreme Court. But because of some of the issues that uh, John spoke about earlier, he never ultimately got that post. Um, so if you're interested in that conversation, um, those of you who are here live can find the link in the chat. And those of you who are watching the recording of this program, uh, just Google for Woodlawn and Historical Society of New York Courts. You'll find it up on YouTube. But as we draw this evening's program closer to a close, um, John and Susan, we discussed a lot of figures here tonight from Clubber um, to Samuel Untermeyer to Kravath to everyone in between. So I'm just sort of curious, first starting with Susan and then we'll wrap up with John. Um, what grave are you headed towards the next time you're at Woodlawn, Susan? I would say Schmidtberger because it's obnoxious. You know, the fact that he promoted his wealth in such a way is just astounding to me. And to be known as the squealer and still have this massive cross and, I mean, a very, very expensive monument. I think, you know, Schmidtberger to me is... Again, just a fascinating character bragging about being the squealer. We but don't Susan, people out in New Susan, York. what about Judge Schmuck? 
Um, that's a favorite for all our visitors. Of course, you know, and the legend has it that Judge Smucks, somebody was going to change their name and appeared before him. And he said, if I can live with my name, you can live with yours. Whether or not that's true, who knows? But nonetheless, a lot of photos are taken of the Schmuck Mausoleum. There you go. And um, before we turn to John, I just wanted to mention that we do often give um, tours and events at Woodlawn almost every weekend. And one thing we did do recently um, was do that legal luminaries tour out in the trolley where we could go visit Judge Schmuck and so many others. So please do um, keep apprised of our upcoming events. Um, the link to that is in the chat. And those of you watching the recording can find that on Woodlawn Conservancy's website. So um, John, closing out with you, um, we are so looking forward to welcoming you in person to Woodlawn. Which grave do you think you're going to visit? I guess I, to, be, to be loyal, I would have to go to Hornblower's grave because he was the, um, you know, the founder of the, I, I wouldn't be here today without William Hornblower. There you go. And um, of course, for me, it's going to be um, our family plot, the Untermeyer family plot, which I understand um, is being restored continuously by Woodlawn's amazing staff um, in, in accord with um, conservation best practices and in partnership with the Entmeyer Gardens Conservancy. So I was just there um, about a week ago and can't wait to go back um, along with every visit to Woodlawn. And if you do wanna visit us, um, please do become a member and support us. And that'll get you set up with all sorts of emails on all of our upcoming happenings like this one, uh, both virtual and online. So as uh, we close here this evening, um, really wanna thank John Oller, uh, once again, the author of White Shoe and Rogues Gallery. Please do um, go to your bookseller of choice um, and go ahead and get both of those volumes. They make a great back-to-back -back read. Um, John, thank you so much for being here this evening. Thank you. And Susan Olson, Woodlawn's Director of Historical Services. Susan, we'll see you out on the trolley, huh? Well, you'll see me in the library waiting for John's next book. I tell there you. There you go. <laughs> thank you, John. I can't wait for your book on Dillinger. All righty. So on behalf of the Woodlawn Cemetery Conservancy, I'd officially like to thank you for joining us this evening. We'll see you again soon. Thank you. Wow, that was quite the conversation with John Aller, author of White Shoe and Rogue's Gallery, and Susan Olson, also of the Woodlawn Cemetery Conservancy, where I also serve as treasurer. If you like today's conversation, go out and buy John's two books at a bookstore of your choice or go to your public library and check them out, although I know there's a waiting list for both. Um, they're pretty popular these last couple of years. And as a reminder, this program was brought to you by the Woodlawn Cemetery Conservancy and the Historical Society of New York Courts. You can find the former at Woodlawn Conservancy just by a Google search, and the latter by visiting history.newyorkcourts.gov. And I'm sure both groups would welcome an email sign up or even a donation from you. So thanks for joining us on this episode. And we'll see you next time on the podcast of the Historical Society of the New York Courts. Have a great day wherever you are. We'll see you again soon.